Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Hey everybody, what's going on this morning? I told you last week we're in the middle of our Love Packs drive and this is some of my favorite weeks of the year because we're not a shame-based culture, we're a gospel-based culture and, and the role of shame in the gospel is to bring you to a point of celebration that God reconciles, redeems, and restores. You're never supposed to stay in shame but for two weeks a year I get to bring up my deep-seated like Baptist Catholic roots and say bring some food everybody, all right? And, and here's what I want to say, man, you stole a week from me this year because you guys brought so much. So I, I just want to say thank you. We're going to pack next Sunday. I know Dylan talked about it, but we have more than we could need to make a couple hundred boxes to feed a few hundred kids over Christmas. And I am thankful for that, that we get to show kids that Jesus loves them by feeding them. Um, and so all the food you see next week that we don't use, we will be donating to Love Pack so they can use on other holidays and times when school's out. But, but I just want to say, man, thank you. You guys did an incredible job. Thanks for bringing stuff and showing people that Jesus loves them. All right? We're going to dive into our text in just a sec, but like every Sunday, we start from a place uh, of, of really challenging what culture teaches us about ourselves. We, we live in a critical culture. We live in a culture that teaches us to, to question things in a negative way. Like we say over and over here, we want to live life with highlighters and not sharpies. We want to find what God is teaching and telling us each and every day. And so this morning we come into this place and we stop down and we say, God, I know that you have something for me. We drop the criticalness of culture and we want to contribute to the conversation of faith that God's having this morning with you and with me. As we open the scripture, we trust the Holy Spirit to speak to us in some way, to show us more and more the goodness of a God whom we could never reach the end of his goodness because he's bigger than us. And so we're just going to stop and pray. I'll ask that you pray to yourself and ask that the Holy Spirit might, might teach you this morning to see God's goodness, and then you pray for me. So let's pray. God, I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful in kind of a, a time in our calendar when we talk about the materialness of our world that we can reset and talk about the goodness of God. This morning, as we open some scriptures to the book of Matthew, Holy Spirit, teach us. Holy Spirit, guide us and show us why we follow a good God. If you're comfortable, I ask you to take a few seconds and, and ask the Spirit to speak to your spirit this morning and to guide you in the ways of how we see God this morning. As you pray for me, we might not see a man in a message, but, but the bigger picture of the gospel unfolding in Matthew 20 this morning, that God uses preparation to grow his kingdom as we gather today. Pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. I'm going to break one of my cardinal rules in life. I'm going to talk about Christmas before Thanksgiving today, all right? Uh, 
So we are in a two-week series on, on blessed. And, and it started by us simply saying, in this time of year when we really pursue material, whether it's Christmas shopping or Black Friday in a few days from now, we want to redefine what that word means because it's used all the time. Last week we talked about, if you got on Instagram last Sunday morning, you, you could find the hashtag blessed used over 149 million times. And what's happened is our culture has co-opted a word that God defines. And so we start by saying, what does it mean to actually be blessed? So Christmas, growing up in my house. Some of you probably know, but I am a twin. And I'm also born on Christmas Day. I had to be a pastor. I had no other choice. And, and so growing up, what would happen, I can remember this vividly, what would happen is we would get presents and we'd pass them out one by one, and your stack of presents on Christmas morning would naturally grow. I have me, I have my brother, I have my birthday, I have Christmas, and for some reason my little brother's stack of packages was always, always bigger than mine. And I remember, even to this day, that felt unfair to me. And I remember being angry about it, like I would count them, you know. I remember in that moment thinking, how could my parents do this to me? I have like 15 presents, but Alan has 17. They hate me, you know? As a father, now I look back on that little brat that was a kid and say, say that out loud, I'll take them all away, you know? <laughs> but, but, but here's the deal. Is, is so often we, we tie material gain to the definition of blessing. We do it in our country all the time. For example, we live in an incredibly affluent culture. This year, on average, they're estimating that each individual person will spend $850 alone on Christmas presents. We, we talked about it last week a little bit, but the average 10-year-old, this is from the Telegraph in the UK, the average 10-year-old owns 238 toys but plays with 12, and 3.1% of the world's children live in America, but we own 40% of all the toys. We live in an incredibly blessed culture, and what we need to do is take away, or we need to kind of move and shift from the definition of blessing being about material gain. In one article that was written by a, a Presbyterian missionary in 2014, it's a HuffPost article, he said, when I say that my material fortune is a result of God's blessing, it reduces the Almighty to some sort of sky-bound, wish-granting fairy who spends his days randomly bestowing cars and cash upon his followers. And so last week we spent some time saying that's not what blessing is. And we posited three things, that blessing is being over having, and blessing is giving over getting, and, and blessing is being satisfied over being satiated as we look through what it means to be blessed in Genesis 1 and in Matthew 5, and as it travels throughout the scope of the scriptures. So we landed in this place where we said, to be blessed is to be satisfied in God and to spread it to others satisfied in God and to spread it to others. Here's my question today. What causes us to not be satisfied with God? In a culture that has so much, what causes us to not be satisfied in God? What causes us to not be blessed because we feel like God has done us wrong? What steals our satisfaction? Matthew 20 is a parable. You can go there if you want to. I'll have some text on the screen as well that Jesus tells to his disciples, and it's right after the story of this rich young ruler, right, who, who came and said, God, I have everything I need. What do I have to do to follow you? Jesus said, give it all away and come on. And he said, I can't do it. And then Peter starts scribing up and says, man, I've given everything for you. Tell me there's going to be a return on my investment. And Jesus says, let me tell you a story about my kingdom. It starts like this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the workers for a standard wage, he sent them into his vineyard. A couple things there. Just to reset, 
and, and get on the same page about parables. Parables were stories told by Jesus to emphasize the rhythms and rule of his kingdom. So the New Testament talks a lot about the kingdom of God, and what it means by the kingdom of God is simply the space and place where God's ways goes all the time. We all have reigns and rules that we fall into, whether it's at your work or in your household. I remember growing up, specifically, I loved going to my mom's sister's house, my cousin's house, because growing up, I was never allowed sugared cereal, ever, right? And if you knew me, you knew that was a community service from my parents to everybody around us. But my aunt and my cousin, they were allowed to eat all the sugared cereal they wanted. And so I loved going there because I could eat Captain Crunch all day long, you know? The point and purpose there is simply to show that the reign and rule of their house was different. I like those rhythms better. When Jesus says, this is like the kingdom, what he's doing is he's forecasting and he's giving hope for, this is what the rhythms of my household will be like one day. Hopefully here now, but one day. And he says, the kingdom of heaven, the rhythms of my household is like a landowner who went out early in the morning. So the kingdom of heaven is manual labor. Sign me up, everybody, you know? He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who goes out into the vineyards. And you have to understand, before we get into this story, it is an extremely Jewish story. So we don't do a whole lot of work in the vineyards nowadays, but like even in Isaiah 5, 1, the prophet says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside, often in the Old Testament. The relationship between the vineyard and the landowner is... Uh, a way of expressing how God relates to his people. And so it was not lost on the Jewish audience what's being talked about here. The, the, the landowner is God and the people are, the workers are Israel. This is exactly what he's saying. It's, it's, time, it's time and place from what they knew. And so he says, it's like a landowner who goes out into the marketplace to hire workers. And, and the marketplace in the first century world was the hustle and bustle of life. It's where you went every day, and you talked about life, and you waited to be hired, and you sat there, and it's kind of the heartbeat of their culture, and this is where the landowner goes. So let's talk about a couple things. Let's talk about the two players in our parable. You have the workers, and you have the landowner. And so just to, to kind of define what the worker is, because what that's going to do is give us more definition or insight onto the landowner. The workers in the marketplace in the beginning and middle and end of the day were people that didn't have work that day. In the Roman world in the first century, roughly about, scholars say, roughly about 30% of the world was slaves at that point. And again, you've got to reset your definition of slavery coming from our culture. It wasn't antebellum South slavery. A lot of it was indentured servitude and people that chose to go in it on their own. And so roughly 30% of the world was probably slaves at that point. And if you were a slave, you had security. You had wages and you had food and you had the knownness of what you're going to do for work. The people that were hired in the marketplace didn't have that. Very insecure way to live. They're day laborers that weren't promised work the next day. It's a hard way to live. The point there is he's making the case that, that these workers brought nothing to the table in terms of desirability. But the landowner went out. It's a theme we're going to find. He went out and he found them where they were. And that's also kind of uh, uh, unusual in the first century world. When you went to hire people to work in your fields, if you owned the land, you didn't go. It's very rare that the landowner himself went out in the middle of the marketplace to find people to give them security. We pick up 
deep themes of incarnation here in Jesus. He goes to the middle of where his people are, meets the ones that nobody else wanted, and says, hey, I got some work. You want to come with me? So the landowner goes out, and he says, I'm going to give you a fair standard wage. Come and work for me at 6 in the morning. We have Your Bibles might translate it differently, but daybreak started at 6, and you'd hire workers. And then it says three hours later, that's 9 o'clock, and then noon, and 3 and 5. So he continues in verse 3. When it was about 9 in the morning, he went out again. He saw others standing around in the marketplace without work, and he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and I will give you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and 3 o'clock that afternoon, he did the same thing. So he kept going out, and he kept going out, and he kept going out. Now, here's what we can't miss. Sometimes in parables, in, in all stories really, we, we try and find cause and read into it, and the Bible doesn't give us cause here. So it really wouldn't serve us well to sit in the middle of this passage and say, well, why did he have to keep going out? Was it because he misappropriated the need for workers at the beginning of the day? We don't know. We're going to get to a group at 5 o'clock that still didn't have work, and we could say, well, maybe they were just really lazy or had serious problems, and we don't know. Sometimes, especially in parables, we can uh, miss what God is doing because we pursue cause at all costs. It's the John 9 situation. There's a blind guy, and they say, why was he blind? Tell me why he's blind. And Jesus says, that doesn't matter. Watch what I'm going to do next. Don't miss this. This is what I'm going to do. And and so all we know, and, and the point of emphasis in this passage, is you have this landowner who keeps going out and keeps going out and keeps going out later in the day and later in the day and later in the day with the implication that he didn't have to, he wanted to. They're really setting the stage for the depth and beauty of grace at the end of this parable. So he keeps going out and he keeps going out and he keeps going out. And if you got hired at 6 a.m. and somebody comes out at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you're probably thinking, what is this guy doing? But it happens again. Look at verse 6, about 5 o'clock. That's the end of the day. At 5 o'clock he went out. He found others standing around him and said to them, why are you standing here all day without work? They said, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go and work in the vineyard too. And this idea of increased hopelessness. Why are you still here? He knew why. These people said, because nobody hired us. And and look, in that day, in that time, if you didn't get hired as a day laborer, chances are you didn't eat that night. That's why we're going to get there in a sec. But in Leviticus 19, when he says he paid him at the end of the day, it commands workers to be paid at the end of every day. Otherwise, you're robbing them. It says, you must not oppress your neighbor or commit robbery against your neighbor. You must not withhold the wages overnight until morning because if they didn't have money, they didn't eat. And so these guys, it's five o'clock. They waited all day. Nobody hired them. So many people probably came in and hired other people. And they're probably at this point pretty darn hopeless. And the landowner stops and looks at them and says, come, I'm going to give you some work. It's a beautiful moment. And again, it parallels how much God pursues his people. How, how God came for the hopeless, how he cares for the downtrodden and the outcast, how oftentimes a theme in scripture is that when you think people overlooked you, God didn't. That's the story of all 12 of the disciples. That God cares, he knows, and he sees. And and he keeps going out from the very beginning of the day to the very end of the day, which just for us means that there's no stopping God's pursuit of his people from the beginning of when Jesus came or even before that to the end when Jesus comes back. He's going to keep going out and keep going out and keep going out with persistence because his persistence shows us how much he cares for his people. And so it gets to the end of the day. Look at verse 8. When it was evening, the landowner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the workers and give the pay starting with the last until uh, the first. 
When those hired about five o'clock came, each received a full day's pay. And those who hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each also received the standard wage. And so you kind of know where this is going a little bit. You have these people that did about 30 minutes worth of work, and they get a full day's wage. And the landowner pays them a full day's wage. And so if you're like me and you're thinking, man, this is going to be great. My birthday's on Christmas, and I'm a twin, and I'm going to get all these presents, and you get the same amount as somebody else. It starts to fester this bitterness in you of, I've been deceived. I've been robbed. I haven't been given what I deserved. God came to the marketplace. The landowner came to the marketplace, found his people, said, I'm going to supply and support you and your needs so that you can eat. And at the end of the day, they're not satisfied with the landowner. And you start to begin to see why they're not satisfied a little bit with the landowner because if blessed is being satisfied by God, the question we have to ask is, is our satisfaction of God dependent upon God or dependent upon how God deals with other people? So very different things. I was driving with a friend uh, this week and we're driving through parts of Dallas. He lives in East Dallas and we're driving through Highland Park. You guys know Highland Park? Very nice neighborhoods. I used to live over that way and... Um, there's a community called Devonshire, which I, I loved. We had a small apartment in, in the neighborhood right by there. <clears throat> and every Christmas, I'd have to drive by like $3 million houses to get to my 600-square-foot apartment. And every Christmas was great because they look resplendent at Christmas. These people do not do their lights themselves like I do, okay? They, they hire people to do their lights. And, and it was hard every time because they have a great life and a great family and a great apartment. My buddy is extremely successful, but he looked at me and said, it's still hard for me to drive in this neighborhood because I can't help but think what it'd be like if I lived here. Is our satisfaction of God defined by God or by others? It's a question that stops us from seeing and celebrating the blessing of God. Uh, Ignatius of Loyola, he's a, a saint. Um, we have a bunch of people at this church that do his journey. And he said, and I love this, ingratitude is the cause, beginning, and origin of all evils and sins. This idea that people don't understand or even accept or realize the goodness of God in the moment. Because God doesn't define good. Others do. And so in verse 11, when they received it, they began to complain against the landowner, saying, these last fellows worked one hour. You've made them equal to us who bore the hardship of the burning heat of the day. That word complain there is in perfect tense. It, it means that the complaining went on. This wasn't like, hey, I did it one time. I should have complained. I'm good. You're good. Let's move on. This is a continual complaint that festered. They kept talking about it and kept talking about it and kept talking about it. And they said, do you know why I deserve more? I worked longer and I worked harder. I had a friend of mine who owns a, used to own a parking lot striping company. In Texas, it's hard, hard labor. And um, he had team shirts that he made for his team. And do you know what color his team shirts were? Black in Texas in the summer. I said, man, why are you doing that to your people? He said, and I quote, because that way I can see how hard they worked when I see how the sweat is dried on their shirt, right? And I thought, you are a mean, mean man. But his point was, I can see how hard they worked and I can pay based on, I can see how much I should give based on what they brought to the table it's the default of how we in our culture operate. I brought this, I should get this in, 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 in return. And we don't get that, we grumble, we complain. Our satisfaction in God drops because it's not defined by God anymore, it's defined by others. It's what we see 
is really the biggest threat to the goodness of God <laughs> is, is, is the prominence of people defining what the goodness of God is. It's me saying the gospel is more about what I get and not who God is intrinsically. And so these workers, these workers that have been blessed by God, that have been given a job, that have had work that day, a good landowner saying, come with me and join in my favor. They said it's not good enough anymore. People that have forgot that they had. So the story continues. In 13, the landowner replied to them, friend, I'm not treating you unfairly. Didn't you agree with me to work for a standard wage? Take what's yours and go. I want to give this last man the same that I gave you. Am I not permitted to do what I want with what belongs to me, or are you envious because I'm generous? It's funny, that word friend there in the New Testament's only seen two other times. One of them is when Judas approaches Jesus. Every time it's used, it's used as a subtle rebuke, saying you're starting in a wrong place. So he says to these men who complained, friend, it's my money, not yours. I can choose what I want to do with it. That phrase at the end of that, am I, are you envious because I'm generous? Literally, it says, is your eye envious? It's a, it's a way to say like envy has taken over how you see the world around you. Fundamentally, this parable is a parable about the grace of God and how we re- react to it and respond to it. Because here's the funny thing about grace. By definition, it's the thing that we don't deserve that we get. And if we fully understand how much we don't deserve grace, it's hard to accept. But once we finally accept it, we start to believe that we deserve it a little more each day, don't we? It's incredibly difficult to see what Jesus did for me, knowing the depth of my despair and the brokenness in my life and say, man, it's hard for me to accept that gift that is so good. But every day that we do accept it, we start to believe deeper and deeper that maybe we deserved it in the first place. Go back to Christmas and me. It's that idea that I'm a seven-year-old sitting in my living room in my house. It's not my house and not my living room and not my presence with my parents who've given me all of these gifts. And what did I do to deserve it? I woke up, right? I didn't create myself. I didn't contribute to the family at that point. I had done nothing to get those gifts there. They're simply there because my parents are good, and that's exactly what I tell my daughter every birthday she has, you know? That I understand that today is a reflection of my goodness towards you and nothing else. Happy birthday, Eleanor, you know? But we deceive ourselves into thinking that we deserve more than we do. There's no greater threat to the gospel of Jesus and the grace of Jesus and the prominence of people thinking they deserve more than they actually did. And so we have a problem with grace here for two reasons. One is that we begin to think we deserve it. And two, we live, not just us, but a lot of cultures live in meritocracies, the exchange of worked goods for worked out compensation. And they struggled with this in the first century too, so much so that in roughly 325-ish in the third, fourth century AD, rabbis began to interpret this verse by saying things like, they'd say, well, the reason that the landowner did that was because the last group worked so hard they earned their pay. Literally, you can read it. Which takes away completely from the purpose of this parable. One author writes, but we are fools if we appeal to God for justice rather than grace. For in that case, we'd all be damned. The parable underlines the truth that God's way is always, always, always the way of grace. You know what's the hardest thing about this parable, though? It's a simple idea that they missed the beauty of grace because they couldn't see outside of themselves. They missed it. We will be blinded to God's blessing as long as we don't see the beauty of God's grace. That's it. You want to be a blessed people? 
You want to be a blessed people? Find and focus on the grace of God all around you. So often, if we define blessed by being satisfied in God and spreading that to others, we define it as how God's been gracious to me, but instead we get the opportunities as followers of Jesus, not just to let the grace of God culminate on us, but flow outside of us and celebrate and see the grace of God in other places. That's what it means to be blessed, to, to find and focus on God's grace, however it might look, however it might manifest itself. So I think this parable tells us that being blessed is being able to see and celebrate God's grace all around us. They saw what God did, and they said God isn't good, instead of, instead of, instead of, seeing what God did to these people that didn't deserve it, and say, man, that's the kind of God that we follow. Instead of seeing a God that's overly gracious, that gives more grace than his justice demands, and instead of saying, that's the kind of God that's worthy of following, they let their satisfaction of God be defined by the people around him and not the person of God themselves understanding full well that God's way has always been the way of grace. It's the principle of the kingdom that we see in our text. It's me on that morning sitting there thinking, man, I love that my little brother got more gifts. Look how gracious my parents are. Those are my parents. Look how good they are. I hope they're not listening. They're going to get inflated heads here. We need to be a people... (laughs) that finds blessing by being satisfied in the goodness of God. We need to be a people that sees and celebrates God's grace wherever it might appear in our world. Then we will be blessed, especially in this time of year where so much of blessing is about what you have and what you get. We stop comparing and we begin to see the beauty of God's grace all over again. And then he ends it in verse 16 by saying, so... The last will be first, uh, and the first will be last. If you really want to get down to it, that phrase is seen three times in this section. It's seen in 1930. It led into this story. It's seen with the landowner in the middle, and then it's also seen at the very end. It kind of encompasses what's happening in our text. And that phrase in and of itself probably rubs some people the wrong way in the first century. Again, meritocracy-based stuff. If you're a, a Pharisee, you're thinking that's not a fair deal. If you're a Jew overall, you're thinking that's not a fair deal. If you're a disciple, you'd given everything to follow Jesus. That's what Peter just says. I've given everything for you. I deserve more than other people. When am I going to get mine? And what Jesus says is the last will be first and the first will be last. And I love that. So growing up, whenever I heard this phrase, I thought, cool, I'm going to go to the back of the line so that really in God's world, I get to the front of the line. Let's game the system. You know, you ever do that? If this is a principle of God, then I'm going to go by the letter of the law and understand that, cool, I will, I will give more of my stuff away so that in the longer term of eternity, I get more for longer. Look at me. God is happy with me. And what we do in that moment, we think like that is we miss the point and the purpose of the kingdom of God. The point and the purpose of this phrase is not some kind of formula for the kingdom. It's talking about the currency of the kingdom, that in the kingdom, because it's a grace-based system, there are no rankings. He's simply saying that you are here because of my goodness, not yours. And so first, last, last, first is a referendum on a culture that ranks. God's saying there isn't because I'm here and be satisfied with me and not what place you're in. 
parable underlines that, that, that the way of God is always the way of grace and that being blessed is able to being able to see and celebrate God's grace all around us. It's a hard thing to do, especially this time of year. I think, and I've said it often, that, that Facebook is just pretty useless. Um, most social media, in my opinion, is, but I'm on it. So what does that say about me? Um, one thing I saw that I loved, a buddy of mine did it a couple years ago. He did something called uh, a thousand days of blessing, a thousand days of blessing. So every day, every day for a thousand days, he posted something he was blessed with in his life. That's easy to do for 10, okay? But then you run out of family members. <laughs> um, and what it does is it, it helps us reshape our thinking around seeing God's grace in places that we normally wouldn't see it and then celebrating that. So as we come into a time of the year that's defined by what we have instead of, and juxtaposed to what we don't have yet, it's defined by what we need and not how God has given us gracious stuff. We need to remember that gratitude is the beginning of blessedness. That, that if we want to be truly, truly, truly satisfied in God, find and focus on his graces in our lives. That's just a charge and a challenge. Maybe it's the cheesy thing you do over Thanksgiving when you go around the table. <laughs> Maybe it's not. But who can you tell this week, this day, this month, this year, every day, this is how I see the grace of God in my world, not just my life. How can we celebrate that? Because when we do that, it changes our thinking to be people that absolutely are blessed in a way that's deeper than just the stuff I might have. And really, that's what changes people that follow Jesus. So we've always done. So we are completely blessed now in this culture by God's grace, not by our merit, right? Like in the first century church, it went good for about 15 years and then it went bad really, really fast. But in the middle of the persecutions, in the middle of the plight, in the middle of the jailings, you could even see Paul and Peter singing that God is good in the middle of what everything else looked like was really awful in the first place because they remembered and they knew that their blessedness had nothing to do with their circumstance but the fact they were satisfied with who God was and what he was doing. And that spread. And then the movement of God spread. Because when we define blessed by the person and work of God all around us, it's a beautiful, beautiful ideal that continues to grow outside of circumstance and situation. And it begins by us simply remembering what he did for us. By looking to the cross and not the people around us. So that's my hope and prayer over the next couple months here. That's where we focus. And that's why we end today with communion. Because it's the ultimate leveler of grace that we need, that we remember that everything that we have been given is because God is gracious and good, and it begins with what Jesus did for us that we didn't deserve. <laughs> that Jesus kept, that God kept coming out into the marketplace of our world again and again and again to show us that he cares for us, and that he's loving, and that he's sacrificed. So we end with communion because it reminds us of the beauty of God's grace that's often overlooked when we don't look right at God. So we're going to take communion together. It's a symbol of what Jesus did for us. On the night that he went to the cross, he had his disciples around him and he held up bread. He said, this is my body. You don't deserve it, but it's going to be broken for you. 
You don't deserve it, but I will go through pain so that you don't have to. This is my body. Every time you eat this, every single time, remember the grace that I've given you. And then he held up a glass of wine and he said, my blood is going to be shed for you. It's going to be poured out so that you might actually find life. Every time you get together, every single time, not just once a month like we do at CBC, but every time you get together and you eat and you drink, remember the beauty of my grace for you and then you'll know that you're blessed. And so he said, drink and remember. Might we be a people that are blessed because we're satisfied by God? Might we be a people that are always satisfied with God because we never forget the beauty of his grace for us? Let me pray. God, I'm thankful for your grace. The sacrifice of Jesus. For, For how you remind us what it means to be blessed in a world that so often changes the definition of something that it should never have been. God, help us be a blessed people, to be people that are fully satisfied in who you are because we keep telling the story of what Jesus did for us because we keep reminding one another that the grace of God abounds in our world and we have to focus and find it so that we might celebrate the good God who is worthy of praise. He's given us far, far more than we deserve. Help us be those people. We pray these things in the name of Jesus.